The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I'd like to welcome my guests today to Data Gurus. It's Lila Rayner, who is the CEO and founder of Logica Research. Welcome, Lila. Thanks so much, Seema. Happy to be here. Thank you for being here. You have, uh, first of all, let's dive in a little bit before we dive into the content, a little bit of a background on how you founded your company. Yeah, absolutely. So I founded Logica Research about 15 years ago. We were initially called Kosky Research. We changed our name a few years ago. And I started it because I wanted to be able to provide great client service to our clients that came from the client side and really liked working with boutique small research firms and wanted to set up something that would provide that experience to our clients. And I come from a financial services background, so I managed the research team at Charles Schwab before I founded Logica Research. That's it. Yeah. So over the years, we've become more niche focused on financial services and fintech, and it's been a super dynamic space. So lots of really interesting work to be done. That's awesome. And when you took the leap of faith from going from a corporate insights function job to founding your own company, was there a ton of trepidation or did, like what was your thought process there in terms of making that jump? Yeah, there were several factors. So one, I was ready for change and wanted to work on different kinds of research and different kinds of projects. And the other was really personal in the sense that I had just had two little kids. I had an infant and a toddler. And going back to that time, there wasn't as much flexibility in the corporate work environment. So starting my own business allowed me to have that flexibility while raising young kids. Yep. Yep. That makes perfect sense. I always say, you know, entrepreneurship, it doesn't mean you work any less. You just get to control your time. <laughs> yes. I'm still up really late after the kids go to bed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's flexibility around the clock. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Looking back, you wonder, I was like, how did we do that? That was nuts. Yeah, it's definitely some uh, meetings where I had fevers because, you know, the kids were sick from daycare and all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally understand. So listen, you have participated and you have also conducted some really interesting research around two hot topics. One of which is, I think you've done it with the Insights Association and the Idea Council, basically helping our industry understand how to ask some questions that have kind of brought to light in our regular society in terms of ethnicity, race, gender. Love for you to just share some background on how did that come about? And then we can talk about some of the findings. Yeah, absolutely. So the Insights Association has a group called the IDEA Council, I-D-E-A. 
And there are two working groups within that council. One is on research and research, and the other one is more about the profession and talent. And I became involved in the research and research group because as a company, our purpose is to provide insights to organizations that improve people's financial lives. And with the murder of George Floyd last summer and an increased focus on inclusion and diversity in the research industry, we wanted to be able to make sure that we had sample and participants that were inclusive and diverse. And so I was introduced to the IDEA Council and lucky enough to be included on that starting this summer and really wanted to contribute. So we started with working with the team there who are just an amazing group of people who have really devoted a lot of time and energy to increasing inclusion in research in the industry. And we created this white paper that was just started to be distributed about a month ago by the IDEA Council. It is about having more inclusive demographic questions. And we focused on race and ethnicity, gender and sexual orientation. And we see this as the first step in a series of research studies that are needed probably on an ongoing basis over time. It's not a one and done to be able to provide a perspective and recommendation on how to ask demographic questions and how to be more sensitive and when and how we ask them, how to be more inclusive and how we ask them. And then ultimately also to be able to help inform how do we use new questions in our sample design. Got it. And what was your methodology? I'm assuming there was some qualitative quantitative. Yeah. So for this first paper, it really was analyzing and looking at the work that had already been done to date. So I do want to give a shout out to Michaela Mora, who had already done a lot of research in this area, but we the council had reached out to academics and executives and lots of people in the industry to find out how questions were being asked today, what issues had come up. And then we looked at academic literature, public studies that had been done, government research that had been done and collected that in one place. So in the paper, we highlight what we think is the initial recommendation and also how we're seeing questions being asked today and what the trade-offs are. And then really it's to point out that the next step is to do more research. So we are working on that right now and I'm putting together a team to do both quantitative and qualitative research to start by looking at race and ethnicity and what are more inclusive and sensitive ways to ask race and ethnicity. And so I'll use this as an opportunity to say that we're looking for resources for that too. So we're looking for volunteer sample providers and really someone who wants to roll up their sleeves and be a project lead on that initiative. So it's a great team, really thoughtful team to work with, an opportunity to make a huge difference in the industry. And just to round out that request, what's the timing and how much time is required? (laughs) Yeah. Great question. If you're going to do the ask, we might as well kind of frame it appropriately and they know what they're getting into. Yeah. So we know Q4 is super busy for everyone. We would love to start in Q4. The the main types of resources we're looking for right now is a project lead, and that's more time intensive, probably closer to, you know, 
10 or 20 hours a month for the first couple of months as we get going. And then the sample providers, we're looking for multiple panel sample providers so we can have you know, the best chance of having a diverse sample to be able to do the research. Okay, great. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit of some of the key findings that or recommendations based on, it sounds like a lot of academic research and understanding through other secondary resources. I know that there's such fine differences between some of the key terms as it relates to sex, gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation. And I'd love for people who might not take the time to read it, I think these are really important nuances that I think different generations are still trying to understand and not even embrace, just know the vernacular and know the differences. I know I have, you know, a daughter in college and my younger daughter, this is not even a question. They get it, they understand it. So it would be helpful if, if you could just share a little bit more about you know, when you think of each of those terms, what should you be thinking about? Yeah, it's super important. And I have a daughter in college and a son in high school. And this is, you know, these are things that they talk about and think about every day. And they're much more nimble than a lot of the older generations. They're much more sensitive inherently. And so I'll start with gender. And you'll see in the paper that, you know, we're differentiating between the definition of sex, gender, sexual orientation, those are the big ones. Our recommendation in terms of how to ask about gender is, first of all, just make sure you need to ask it. Do you need to ask it in a study? Does it need to go in the screener or can it go in at the end of the survey or at the end of the questions if it's sensitive? And really look at, you know, are you asking about gender or are you asking about sex? So, we have a three-tiered approach recommendation to asking about gender or sex, which is what sex were you assigned at birth? And then there are follow-up questions. And then one of the things that, you know, we really point out is we, I think all of us are starting to see non-binary or other as options on gender-related questions. And there really is not a lot of research on what non-binary means to most people. Again, I think it's a term that comes up with younger generations, but hasn't been clearly defined in research and hasn't isn't clear maybe to older generations. So we would caution using terms that might not have universal definitions and encourage the option to self-identify with an open end. I also would highlight that just even having other other specify can be sensitive to people and, and off-putting. And so having an option of prefer to self-identify and an open end and not just asking other specify. That's a great point, actually. Yeah. And then for sexual orientation, differentiating sexual orientation for, from gender. And we have suggestions on different ways to ask about sexual orientation, but be careful not to include sexual orientation response options mixed with male, female, prefer to self-identify. It's really a different question. And again, think about where it goes. Do you need it on the survey? Is it a screening question? Or is it something that can go at the end of the survey? In general, looking at demographic questions as sensitive questions, like you would, you know, questions about household income or assets or money questions. And 
Similarly, for race and ethnicity, you know, there's a pretty big section in the paper on race and ethnicity and a lot of different ways you could ask the question. We really start by saying, think about asking an open-ended question. And we have terms identified in there. There's race and ethnicity, but also country of origin, ancestry, culture, and people think about those terms differently. And what we're seeing is, for example, for sure that people identify with multiple races or ethnicity. There's also a portion of the population that thinks about their country of origin more than race and ethnicity. And then one big call it, I would say, is this paper and these recommendations were really based on the United States and not intended for every country, which has, especially when it it comes to race and ethnicity, has their own guidelines. In some countries, you can't ask about it on a survey. So this was really geared for the United States. Got it. And what do you recommend as it relates to asking the question about race? Is, are there certain recommendations in terms of how you would ask that question? Yeah, and we our initial and first recommendation right now until more research is done is to ask it in an open-ended way and then code and have make sure you have a sensitive coding framework. So make sure that you have diverse people looking at the coding frame so that it's inclusive, right? Then the second recommendation is to allow for multiple selection. And then like the other areas, allow for self-identification. We have included the most recent census question in there. But again, that was developed for the purposes of the census. And we know that people use that question for designing sample frames but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is sensitive and inclusive and we're looking for a new path forward or at least understanding how people react to that question versus other ways we might ask about race and ethnicity. This is such a great paper. Lila, where would people find this paper if they wanted to get the more details around the research you guys have done? Yeah, absolutely. So it's on the Insights Association Idea Council website. Okay, great. Yeah. Another hot topic. I mean, this is an area that your company focuses on, but through the pandemic, there's been a ton of economic and financial uncertainty and stress. And you guys have a ongoing study that you do, which I believe is called the future of money. Yep. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been doing this future money study since 2017 when we really you know started to see a need for having ongoing consumer insights in the money space with so much changing around how people make money, spend it, save and invest it. So we really look at those four areas in the study and what we refer to as the life cycle of the dollar. And so some of that was around side hustles and people making extra money in a bunch of different ways. And again, something that we see more of in younger generations, but certainly across all ages. And then in the how we spend money space, payments, all the different options we have for how to pay and people starting to use their you know, phones to pay and Apple Pay and Google Pay and so, ne- and so on, and then buy now, pay later. 
and then all the in-app ways to pay and peer-to-peer payments. And so super dynamic space. And then how people manage their money and personal finance and saving and investing. And with the pandemic, it just became very clear right away because of how many people were impacted financially by the pandemic that we really dug into this more last year. We actually did four waves versus our usual two semi-annual waves of the study. And it was amazing. You know, I've been working in financial services research for 25-ish years now. And we used to see that people were really hesitant to talk about money. You need to be really sensitive. And with the pandemic, with really just universal impact on people's financial lives, people have become so open to talking about money and sharing the impact on their work, if they lost their job, how and then how they're saving and investing. And then, of course, we saw, you know, we're in a bull market and we've seen what's happened in the investing space and cryptocurrency this year. And just, I would say, almost the, the increased democratization or re-democratization of investing with so many people having access to investing tools and being interested and having had time on their hands <laughs> to invest. That's true, too. But, you know, it's funny. Like, I remember a time when people, and I'm sure there's many who still do it, but a lot of the younger generation, I find investing is almost like betting. You know, they kind of don't do the fundamentals of understanding the, you know, the 52 week ups and downs, understanding, you know, is the company fundamentally strong? It's more of crowdsourcing in terms of what they're doing and how they're investing, which is kind of, I mean, we've seen that, right? With GameStop and some other stocks that were largely impacted. Are you seeing more of that within certain populations? Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to give a shout out to Katrina Noel and her team at No Research because they jumped in last year and did qualitative research with us on the future of money and have some great video conversations with people from the study. And we did a webinar last time on money conversations with Gen Z. And just from the beginning of the pandemic, we saw young people investing more and crowdsourcing advice. And we saw a range. You know, I talked to two young men, one of whom was more sort of traditional conservative investing for the long term and one who was experimenting more in terms of investing and for the short term. And really interesting conversation there. And I would say that has continued where, you know, people's own sense of risk and willing to take risk and how cautious they are impacts how much they look at as gambling and gamification of investing versus investing for the long term. But people are absolutely self-educating and crowdsourcing advice and learning. And I would say, you know, very open to just getting advice from their parents if they're young, getting advice from their friends doing their own research online, getting tools. And we've seen that they're also looking more to financial institutions and advisors for advice. So like every place they can find advice and resources and information. Yeah. And Gen Z, our theme for that webinar was that Gen Zs are resourceful when it comes to money because they're just really digging in and learning early. It's like the pandemic gave them a chance and time to think about this stuff more Yeah. And also, I guess that if, you know, I don't know if you found this in your research, but when you see so much 
economic impact to either your parents or your neighbors or your community. It's almost as if they want to do some of this on their own so they don't get caught, you know, flat-footed if, God forbid, this happens another 10 years. Yeah. I don't know if that came out in some of the research or not. Yeah, they're just really getting in front of investing and their personal finance. I think in like many ways they are in other parts of their lives. So I'm just fascinated with this youngest generation, not just because my kids are in that generation, although that's definitely part of it. But I've just been really impressed with how, you know, their lives are have been a lot harder in a lot of ways, but just a very scrappy, resourceful generation, and especially when it comes to money. Yeah. Resilient, right? Like they've been hit with a lot and they continue to keep moving. Yeah. And to your point, being resourceful. The other key finding I found interesting, like, as you know, the labor market is going through a major change in the, you know, it's definitely an employee's market uh, versus employer market. But one of the things that the study showed was that a lot of employees are looking for guidance and help from their employers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, all of a sudden I was like, wow, that's a big ask. Or is it still the basics like 401k? Or is there something above and beyond that employees are looking for? Yeah, great question. So it's definitely the basics. Okay. And this is a yes and. It's also going above and beyond. So I, you know, we're asking questions in different ways than we asked before because we are seeing that people are looking for more from their employers. And just a spoiler alert, we just came out of the field with our fall wave and we have more questions, the future of work part of the future of money. So how people are making money because of what we are seeing and because of the great resignation trends. And so we have more insights on what people are looking for employers. But what we're seeing is that people want more than just a 401k or, you know, making sure they have healthcare insurance and, you know, fair competitive compensation and bonus and vacation, they are also looking for help with budgeting and financial advice and planning for the future. And they're also looking for emergency savings funds because we started seeing that show up at the beginning of the pandemic when it was clear a lot of people didn't have those funds and they're looking for help from their employers. They're also looking for help with you know, personal finance. So beyond budgeting, the saving and investing tools and perspective that go beyond their retirement planning. So I think this all is part of a picture that employers are taking into account in terms of providing employees with overall financial wellness. So you know, compensation is just one aspect of that. And with so many employees in transition and moving around and taking new careers or taking new positions, I think we can expect as employers that they're going to be looking for some of these benefits. I love it though, because I feel like, again, some, I think we've had many different conversations, but that kind of professional personal wall is disappearing and, and people are looking for the you know, the total self and there's not hiding of where a person might need help or where a person is, you know, might lack resources. So I think it's encouraging. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you know, again, our purpose as a research company is really to help with those insights to improve improve people's financial lives. And so 
and financial inclusion. And I think employers are in a place right now where they need to look at how they can help their employees in different ways. And what the pandemic really opened up, I think, the eyes of a lot of executives across different industries in terms of how employees were living, um, what their needs were, you know, for employees that are in the lower paid tiers of big companies. I know there's always been, and this is, you know, pandemic or non-pandemic, but there's always this question of, are we going to become a cashless society? (laughs) I know you've done some research in terms of payment forms. Are you seeing any trends that point to the fact that, you know, people or consumers are using less cash and alternative forms of payment? Yes, absolutely. People are using less cash. And we have been asking about this, you know, when are we going to go cashless since 2017? And it's still, I think, in the distant future for a lot of people. But, you know, obviously there was less use of cash uh, during the pandemic and people aren't necessarily going back to cash. So we see other forms of payment, again, the peer-to-peer payments and using in-app payment options and, you know, autofill payment options at checkout online and increased use of buy now, pay later, increased use of phones. Although mobile payments in person are still relatively low, it's just that people are using their credit or debit cards more than they are cash. And do you think, circling all the way back, do you feel like for groups that are underrepresented, right, when we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, do you think these alternative forms of payments benefit, you know, underrepresented people and groups in our society to be able to be more, to have more equity, basically? So like I think of a credit card, you have to get a credit check. And I don't know how many people can do a credit check that might not be making enough money. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're referring to a couple of different things. So one is, you know, a lot of I think groups who have historically been unbanked or underbanked, underserved by banks because they are cash-based, there's still a lot of cash usage there. But you know, some of this is also in the United States where versus other countries where you know their banks aren't central to payment systems and in that you know, phone payments are already happening and there's already essentially digital currency. And so I think we still in the United States see that underbanked people are using cash more because there hasn't been as many other options. But I do think you'll start to see this open up as well as, you know, there's greater movement of money, not just within the United States, but outside of the United States. And you don't need to have a financial institution for some of those payment methods. Those intermediaries are, might not be as critical in the future. Yeah. But that's a good question and one in which, you know, the United States is pretty different from other countries already. And just in terms of the fact that we are less likely to use our phones for payment at checkout in person compared to other places, although that's definitely changing with the pandemic. Well, and then you have this whole topic of security and we won't get into that now, but that's that's another thing that every time you hear about like a security breach, you're like, wait, should I be paying online? Should I not be paying online? What's the right thing to do? So. (laughs) Yeah. 
I think in the United States, you're probably going to see cash for a while, but it's definitely changing. Lila, thanks so much for joining me. I would love to have you back once you get the results out of field for the future of work for your next wave. And obviously, same with the next, the, the qual and quant phase of the other research, the Idea Council research that you'll be working on. Yeah, I would love that. And we're seeing some really interesting generational differences in the future of work. So I can't wait to share those. Awesome. Thank you, Lila. Thanks so much, Dima. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.